0: Welcome to Right Wing Dharma Squads. Today we are talking gurus, teachers, and spiritual guides. I am your host, Dharmik Kirti. I am joined with my friends. If you want to, uh, yeah, please introduce yourselves. That's me. I'm Aura.
1: And I'm Kagyu.
0: We should really have a better, I don't know. I don't know how to do the intro thing better. I don't know that I, it's always a little awkward. Anyway, that's fine.
2: Well, part <laughs> of the problem is that my name is so bad, Aura. No, I like I go I by... that's
0: bad.
1: Mine's remarkably uncreative as well. Well, actually, just mine's remarkably uncreative. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I should be named after a dude instead. I'm named after a concept, so I don't know. Um,
0: so I don't really have a great segue, but I did want to start talking about our um, our topic today, which is teachers. Uh, or you had suggested it, uh, and I thought it, I think it's a great idea and something that needs to be talked about. But I was curious if there was a particular reason or you had something in mind or or um, some piece you wanted to say to, to kick us off.
2: Yeah, thanks, DK. Um, well, it's a shame that our friend Storm King isn't here. Yeah, um, no, I was
0: also trying to filibuster to see if he could show. Up. We'll see anyway. But yeah. Uh, it yeah, going. it's
2: very possible that he'll show up during this recording. Um, uh, and if he does, hello. That'll be great. And if, actually, I don't have a teacher, uh, and that's partially why this topic interests me so much. Um, I've met with meditation masters in the past, but I've never taken vows with one. Um, and I don't currently have, uh, anybody that I would consider my, you know, quote, my unquote master. Um, but there is somebody, uh, as I've mentioned many times before on this podcast that I do, I, I, I do follow him as if he were my teacher. He has no idea that I exist. Um, but i but because of the magic of the internet i'm able to read his uh essays and his translations i'm able to listen to his dharma talks and so um i i i do in a very postmodern kind of way consider him my master but i'm also of course fully aware of the fact that, it, that that's sort of a shadow version of having a real master Um, And that's, again, why I wish Storm were here, because he'd probably – well, he wouldn't rip me to shreds because he's a nice guy. But, you know, he'd probably push back very um, firmly against the idea that I could call that guy my master. So um, I'm interested in the idea of lineage. I'm interested in the idea of passing down wisdom, not through books, but through individual teachers. And um, I will see the floor here in a second so you guys can say your own piece, but – uh, since I don't actually have a master, what I did prepare to speak about is how the guy that I I do sort of follow, again, Tani Sarabiku, uh, who his master was and who his master's master was and, and the story of how that happened, because it's been very um, explicitly detailed in a lot of writing. So that's what I'm going to talk about. So that's it.
0: So when you say you haven't taken vows with a master, you mean you haven't taken you've taken vows, but not with a master, or what do you
2: mean? No, I I was just using those words as kind of placeholders. What I mean is that I I've talked to masters, but I I I I've never devoted myself to any of them. I guess.
0: Did you? I've have you taken taken like, the triple refuge? You've taken refuge? Okay, yeah. So, but you have so you have like a refuge? Yeah, yeah, or... yeah. yeah. Who is that?
2: Yeah, but that was also like 19 years ago, 10,000 yeah. miles away, and I've never spoken to that person in the last 15 years. Sure. So.
0: I mean, a refuge guru is not necessarily a guru guru. Um I think that that is something that need to be need to be said. It, it's it's often I think it's I've seen this happen um a bunch with westerners. Not it's not it's not ubiquitous, but it does happen relatively frequently that you know, westerners find a guru, a lama to to take uh, and for those, um, I mean, we mentioned this before, but um, just to reiterate for maybe new people or people who don't know, or, or in case you forgot, um, the, the, the transition into, like, in a sense, you could say kind of like baptism to sort of formally becoming Buddhist is is what's called taking refuge, meaning you go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, the teaching, and the, uh, the Sangha, the community of practitioners. And this is called the, the triple jewel or the triple refuge um or the three jewels and this is the foundation really of of all of buddhism um or you know whatever you want to call it but um yeah and and so traditionally you would go for a refuge it's called go for refuge to or with a teacher i guess you go for refuge to the three jewels but you go with a teacher who would like give you these vows essentially you take you sort of I, i i um I take refuge in the buddha i take refuge in the dharma i take refuge in the sangha um and but that doesn't just because some teacher gives you those gives you offers (laughs) refuge in that way doesn't mean that you know that is quote unquote your teacher in the sense that those words yeah it's like you know
2: if you're a catholic or a or a baptist or something you know you you get baptized to become a christian right uh, but after you become a Christian, uh, it doesn't mean that the same person who baptized you has to become the same person who becomes your spiritual leader or whatever. Right. Right. Yeah, spiritual
0: father. Right. Typically in the church, it's called.
1: Yeah, it's like because I have. I mean, I myself, I have. I, I know two lamas. One of whom I've actually did take refuge vows with. The other one I have somewhat regular access to. But from what I understand, the actual process of a getting a, of, of a teacher, finding a teacher in the Tibetan tradition is a very serious kind of commitment. And so, because I haven't been really a, a practitioner for that long of a span of time, I, there's not one that I consider to be my teacher specifically.
0: E- even so, when, really, it's yeah. like, mm, no, no. I was going to say, even when, you know, maybe you do, um, it's not uncommon. I mean, even the, in the Tibetan context, the highest, you know, Lamas and Rinpoches and so on, these you know, really kind of you know, exalted beings, so to speak. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they'll have often. I mean, they have a bunch of teachers themselves, and maybe they'll have one that they'll say or consider their heart llama or something like that. But it's typically not. It, it, what's interesting is, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm not so. Um, I don't know what to say. Like, I'm not. I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert on anything. We're all beginners here. But uh, it, it, in my kind of limited mm-hmm. experience, what I've just sort of trying to pay attention to how people talk and what people say you know that that do seem to have some experience and more knowledge than me uh it's it's, it's the the thing about you know, again, especially in the Tibetan context, things are a little weird because people. There was actually a, an accusation that used to be leveled that Tibetan Buddhism was what they call Lamaism because there was so kind of over the top <laughs> devotion to the Lama. And and I mean, that's obviously polemical and like not entirely fair, but there is something to it in a certain way. Um, and and one thing that I'll say yeah. about that that I don't I don't I'm curious how it comes, and I'm really curious how it comes across in a Zen context. And it's again, it's unfortunate. Uh, Storm couldn't be with us, but is that basically a lot of it comes down to this kind of transcendent guru principle, um, particularly in there's like one branch of the Tibetan thing called the old old tradition or the old school that is concerned with um, like really intensely devotion, um, really intensely concerned with devotion to um, Guru Rinpoche, which means precious guru or precious teacher. And he's this like He was a historical figure but he's become associated with this sort of like like the ultimate teacher principle of the multiverse that's built into the nature of reality as like you know in the same way that enlightenment is built into the nature of reality like an enlightenment is inherently teaching beings how to escape from samsara from suffering um that principle is embodied in this like transcendent guru principle and and so when you like when you have a relationship with a human teacher in some sense, your human teacher is is embodying that transcendent guru principle um but but importantly, that's not to say that any one individual human being, even though you need a relationship one on one with an individual human being um that that you know at the end at a certain level, it's like about you know your mind and the teacher's mind, both of which the nature of your minds are. Buddha are, are enlightened already. That's the whole, like, Vajrayana thing. And so it's, it's not even about I, – I don't know that I'm making much sense. I'm probably talking about things that I shouldn't be talking about. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm curious what you're No, no, it's say. okay.
2: But uh, what's interesting about the Tibetan – what's interesting about the Tibetan tradition is that who is the single most famous living Asian Buddhist today?
0: Probably the Dalai Lama, I would presume. is what you It's the Dalai Lama. Yeah.
2: Yep. Yeah, like far and away, far and away, far and away. And there's other people like uh, I guess Thich Nhat Han is pretty famous. You know, I'm talking about Asian Buddhists who are living today, right? Uh, I would say Thich Nhat Han is probably the at least in the West, you know, uh, mm-hmm. famous. And uh, earlier, uh, before he died, D.T. Suzuki was very famous. Although we can question about whether or not he was actually a Buddhist. But <laughs> yeah. um, so, but the point is that the point is that there's like it's incontrovertible what the answer to that question on the number 1 level is it's the dalai lama the dalai lama is the most famous living asian buddhist uh in the world today uh in the western world and uh that speaks to now i don't want we, we don't have to get into the actual dalai lama who's living today himself but it speaks to this guru tradition in tibet uh that that he's so important because japan has a living buddhist tradition right uh and so does thailand and so does sri lanka and so do many other countries right but it's it's the dalai lama that we know about because it's so held up as having like a leader a guru right uh in that tradition
1: Though I think with a lot of Westerners who are looking at it from the outside, there's this perception that he's like the Pope of Buddhism or something. I've I've come across yeah, that.
2: Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, people totally misunderstand his actual role. But the reason that he's so well-known is because even within Tibet, it's very clear. Uh, well, well, I'm sure you Tibetans <laughs> will tell me <laughs> how it's not clear. But the point is, is that it comes from a tradition in which uh, – an elevated teacher is considered to be super important, like that. Just,
1: yeah, it, that does make sense. I mean, he was—you know—he's uh, the former political head of Tibet and also the head of the largest school of Tibetan Buddhism. So it would make sense that he would be held up as kind of the preeminent example
2: of it. I guess to- that's my point. It's yes. my point is that he is the political. And spiritual head of Tibet, officially. Well, a lot of that has by to, the very yeah. rules of the whole country of Tibet. Well, so this right? gets
0: into some, you know, like. All right. So, yeah. All sorry. Right, oh, we sorry. Go. Were you? Oh, was <laughs> that for the dog?
2: No, no. I said. I said. Here we go. Here we oh. go, Darvik. <laughs>
0: give us. Give us details. So okay, I don't know how. I don't. I know more about India and Tibet than other Buddhist societies, but I mean, I've, I've you know, I've been to. Some Theravada countries, and I know, like you know, for example, um, Thailand is still a, a monarchy, and and the monarchy is still very closely associated to uh, the monastic system. The thing is, this idea of like, I mean, I, I don't know necessarily that you were coming at it from like, oh, and the, and he's a political and religious thing, and that's bad. Um, but. First of all, I really have to question the idea that these are ultimately...
2: Certainly not. Yeah, Certainly right? Not. Like, what
0: is it, you know, we, if, you don't, if you don't have some kind of... If you're not legitimated by a theological structure, or the theological structure itself isn't in political control, then one of these other things will happen eventually through the back door, which is what we're witnessing now in the West. I'd uh,
1: call it the opposite. I'd say it's an example of sacral kingship in the uh, sense that Evola, Evola talks yeah. about it. Yeah. Well, that's uh, yeah. Exa- it's a very sure. good thing then.
0: Right. I mean, I. Well, I think so. But but the point is, um, the, the I think the resistance that we often have to that, or the way it would, in which we kind of in the West tend to um, look at it as, I don't know, <laughs> problematic. I guess to use a kind of overused word is is because we we think of authority being consolidated in a way that's inappropriate and and maybe of course you know there can be abuses i i submit that we don't there's no no evidence that the abuses of our current secular global homo clown world system are any better but but leaving that aside i i i think so so much of this comes down to um for whatever you know uh, complex of historical reasons we have this real problem with authorities particular with the idea of of religious or spiritual authority the idea that there exists some human beings particularly some living human beings that are more spiritually advanced than we are i mean a lot of this i think one of those historical factors is the protestant critique of saints and sainthood the idea that you know human beings could achieve this status um but but, even leaving that aside in terms of things in the past, I think what what even non protestants or or in in many cases um you know practicing uh faithful people have a problem with or or like an instinctually they recoil at the idea of is precisely the idea that you know there are human beings that are some human beings are more spiritually advanced, which is to say in a very important way maybe. Again, I would maybe even submit like the only really important way or the only way better. There are better, there are people that are better than others. They're more moral, that are more spiritually advanced, that are capable of leading poor benighted yep. fools like you yep. and me. And, and, and unless you're willing to acknowledge, I, I, I would actually say that, at, you know, if you want to have a first approximation Distinction of the difference between right and left, that's the difference, is, is truly right-wing people are yep. capable of acknowledging that and saying, like, yes, I am fucked up. This other human being, who is a human being, is, not a, is either not fucked up at all, is actually either completely sorted himself out or herself out, um, or at the very least is, like, much, much farther along the path than I am, and, and I need this person's help. And, and I will submit my man. will to them. Yes. And and that that, that yes. is that's why I keep harping on this thing about Satanism and Luciferianism is because what is the essence of the Luciferian revolt if not precisely this refusal to submit your will to the will of a higher being?
2: Yes, and that's why I was talking about the harmonic in our chat on the same uh, issue yeah, is yeah, right. that it, the idea that nobody could ever be in charge, and it's all just a bunch of fucking ones and zeros everywhere, right? Like, it, it's it's uh, two sides of the same coin, the Luciferian and the uh, Harmonic on that. But I wanted to ask, I already said uh, that I'm going to talk about Ajahn Mun, Ajahn Lee, and Tanisaro Sarabeku. So who are Kagyu and Dharmakirti going to talk
1: I was going to mention Sogyal Rinpoche a little bit. Um, just
2: yeah. yes, good. And wait, there hey, was a, I, there was I want. Actually wait, Ka- Ka- I, are, you, I want. Yes. I want you to do it. But uh, before you say it, Dharma Kirti, who are you going to talk?
0: About? Oh, I had. I, I wanted. To, I mean, it's sort of similar and so uh, the kind of inverse picture in some ways of Sogyal Rinpoche um, was Chugum Trungpa. And then I had one other figure in mind if we have time for him, depending. Um, but before we and I if
2: the, uh, Storm King talks out, uh, yeah, shows up, I'm sure he'll talk about exactly. Master Yunmen probably. All right, so, uh, Kagyu, you want to go first?
1: Uh, Yes, I'll go ahead. So Sogyal Rinpoche was um, founder of an organization called Rigpa, which was instrumental in bringing Dharma to the West. He's a uh, lama in, I think, the Nyingma tradition of of Tibetan Buddhism, and uh, wrote a book called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. Now, the thing is while he was very well known for bringing dharma into the west about two years ago he was accused of um, having some inappropriate sexual relations with his female students and ended up having to step down from the organization and the reason I bring him up is because there's this kind of principle that I often hear mentioned that one is supposed to treat their uh, their guru as like almost a living Buddha in, in in the Tibetan tradition and yet we do have examples of someone like this who is clearly, or at least it seems to me, use, misusing the authority. So it's kind of the question of how do we approach you know, the, the demand the student has to treat their um, teacher with this kind of respect, while also being very careful as to avoid getting yourself into a situation like that. And, you know, the interesting thing is he had a lot of very good teachings up until the point where he was disgraced. He was a proponent of um, Rime, which is this non-sectarian movement, and actually expanded it beyond just the Tibetan tradition. So he would quote the, Dharma, the Dhammapada, in, or he would mention Zen teachers. And he would say, you know, even someone within the Tibetan tradition has a lot to learn from the other traditions within Buddhism, which I completely agree with. And that's actually a great message for us here in the West where we have access simultaneously to all these different traditions of Buddhism and so yes he had a great message but at the same time was using this message as a way to um, well misusing it unfortunately and so that's kind of the, the what I wanted to talk about was how do we evaluate a teacher and 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 what what level of like reservation should you have when you're approaching a teacher Like, how much should you be willing to step back and say, "Okay, maybe I need to stop," or maybe it's appropriate to, you know, draw some kind of boundary here. That seems to me like the real kind of question I have in my mind.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, There are like lists. I mean, everything. There's no God in Buddhism, just lists. But it's true. I mean, there are. (laughs) um, It is the the. There are lists of you know qualities you should look for in a teacher, and, and, and in a certain sense these can be you know com- compressed into um, bodhicitta, the um, the mind of awakening, um, or the awakened mind, which is you know basically the the wisdom that sees the nature of reality as it is, and the activity of benefiting sentient beings, um, all sentient beings, without exception and without bias. So, if you've these two qualities, um, make a teacher, and you know, and then there's kind of more expansive lists of like, you know, and and and, um, the, the problem is, and this is why I mean, the, the figure I wanted to talk about, who's I said, sort of like a funhouse mirror version of, um, Sogyo Rinpoche, or, or one of the people whose activities kind of, uh, provided the theoretical framework that made a phenomenon like Sogyo Rinpoche possible is Chugyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who um, is one of the most important, um, if not maybe really the, certainly among the hey, most TK, Before yes. you yes,
2: before you continue, could you explain to our listeners why the name sounds so similar? Rinpoche. Yeah, Rinpoche is what? a title.
0: Yeah, thank you. That's a great point. Rinpoche is a title in Tibetan. It means precious, literally. And it, <laughs> um, uh, basically it, it there's a kind of informal system i mean this gets into the whole like so buddhism no 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 but just the
2: short the short, short version, version is buddhism recognizes listeners. the reality Rinpoche means
0: ripache means precious it means it means a reincarnated Lama, a llama who's recognized as having been somebody famous and important in a recent ish past life um of like the highest level because there's kind of like informally you could say there's like roughly so, like
2: so the fact that sogyal rinpoche and chogyam Trungpa, uh rinpoche have the same rinpoche doesn't mean that they're necessarily related oh no it's not a at title, all though, it's, isn't
0: it? yeah it means it, it's like saying your grace or something it, it it or his eminence or or something like that it's it's really it's not like it's not a fan the, the the family names are completely separate it's a title
2: Okay, I'm done with my autism. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. Story. I just wanted to, yeah,
0: yeah. Um, yeah, there's like there's, there's like a couple different, there's like two or three different levels-ish. I mean, it's, again, these things are kind of always subject to negotiation, but of like beings that are recognized from early childhood typically as having been, as, as being either manifestations of a particular Bodhisattva, like the Dalai Lama is recognized as a manifestation of Avalokiteshvara, So that would be like a Rinpoche level. Um, And then there's like generic-ish, you could say tulkus, who are like, tulku literally means emanation body in that kind of a way. But typically if if a llama is getting called tulku, unless there's also tulku something something Rinpoche, um, being called tulku in a formal sense means you're like not quite as important as someone who is being recognized as a Rinpoche. I mean, it's sort of the cash value of that. It's a whole. Basically, it's an. It's no, like, no, no. It's a it's a theocratic aristocratic, like feudal society system, and it has its abuses, like with Sogam Rinpoche, But it also yeah. What's works. an
2: earl and what's a what's a what's what? an earl and what's a yeah a, right a baron and what's all this an earl stuff? and yeah. what's a count and what's a duke and what's yeah a baron. Yeah, yeah yeah all I, right so uh, Chogam Chung Rinpoche, Rinpoche was
0: um so the the there's like a couple different ways that you could divide the tibetan buddhist tradition by sort of tradi- by internally you would say there's five schools or five like top level traditions although a lot most of the pretty much all of those have a wide variety of internal variegation um so one of and one of the most variegated really is um the kagyu tradition like our friend kagyu here um and so the, the the kagyu tradition is is really almost less of i mean it's it's a it's it's very very has a lot of internal um differentiation in terms of its structure but uh in a sense what what unites most of the kagyus or or pretty much all the kagyus is a really heavy emphasis on devotion to the teacher and um in particular sort of this um like there's a founding mythos uh, connected to a string of tutor, teacher-student relationships in late Indian Buddhism right around the time the Muslims were coming and killing everyone, where um, there was this uh, very famous scholar at the great university complex of, um, I think it was Vikramashila, Vikramashila Nalandar, um and his name was uh, Naropa or Narupada. And he was this, he was this really, really highly regarded, you know, polymath scholar type. And he was, but he was frustrated because he knew all this philosophy and he knew the teachings inside and out. And he even had some experience in meditation and everything, but he, he wasn't really, he knew that he, was, he didn't quite get it. It was some important component of his training that was missing. So he went, um, he had a, actually, I think a vision, if I recall correctly, of Tara, this kind of um, mother goddess type figure um, who told him straight up, Tara told Naropa like, well, actually, you know, you're never going to get where you want to get. If you stay here in the university, you have to go meet this um, teacher named Tilo or Tilo. So Naro leaves the university um, and wanders around. And one day he stumbles across a <laughs> crazy homeless person who is barbecuing fish on the side of the road and to make a long story short basically he this this crazy homeless person who's barbecuing fish is is tilo which is like this is the most one of the most eating meat is one of the most disgusting things you could do in indian culture and um particularly for kind of high caste you know highly educated people and uh and and so they proceed to have this relationship for many years where basically tilo just wrecks him over and over again and just at one point he tells him you know well if I had a student he would jump off this building and so Naro dutifully jumps off the building and breaks all his bones and Tilo like looks at him and says nah, and like snaps his fingers miraculously heals all his wounds and then they continue doing their thing um the 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 definitive moment is said to have been when um Tilo slapped um, Naro in the face with the bottom of his sandal, which again is just one of the filthiest, most disgusting things you could do. It's, I mean, touching like feet are gross. In gen- I mean, I think for everyone we could recognize feet are gross. In Asian culture, feet are like especially gross, and and shoes are like just unfathomably disgusting. So, like you know, to touch someone, to like hit someone with your shoe is just all kinds of nasty. But that's and that, but that's what the teacher did, and that was the moment that like woke him up. It said to you know his design of final thing then if you skip ahead and uh, like a generation or two in the Kagu kind of oral tradition lineage, um, uh, it, there's actually some historical question about this, but basically Naro had a student who was a Tibetan named Marpa and Marpa had a student who was a Tibetan named Mila or Milarepa. And, and this, and, and Marpa basically tortured, <laughs> tortured Milarepa to the worse than, than, um, uh, Naro had been tortured by Tilo, but, uh, Nonetheless, well, this is sort of. Sorry,
1: I mean to be fair, it was because Milarepa had some pretty terrible. Yeah, he caramel. he had
0: killed yeah. a bunch of people and done a bunch of bad stuff. He was a he had been he was a bad and boy. And for our
2: listeners, now's the point you should start paying it a lot of attention because Milarepa turned out to be one of the greatest. Right, uh, exactly. He's one of the great saint the, yogis yes. of
0: history of human history. Um, but the the point is that it like all these stories of teachers kind of abusing students in this way that looks like abuse from the outside or maybe from a quote-unquote objective perspective but in reality what they're doing is something very sophisticated and very subtle in terms of managing their students minds and breaking down their expectations and opening them up to the nature of reality as it really is and getting rid of their bad karma and all these very 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 you know foundational extremely important things um it's celebrated in the culture, and there are still examples of that. I mean, you know, being with a with a highly realized master. If you know, these days they're expected to be kind of like gentle lambs, because that's what we culturally, particularly in the West, expect of them. And they're willing to play the part usually to to some extent. But you know, you get alone in a room with them, or you start developing a real relationship with them. I mean, I've seen like just. I, I've I've seen teach and, and I mean it was fully dessert. I would want to I would say this out like I, I saw I saw a very Highly just a great teacher that I respect a great deal Um, just btfo this student who like didn't understand how Selfish he was being but it was like he's like no, you need to leave. Bye. I don't want to talk to you right now He's it was, it was like increasingly <laughs> nasty as because he was making unreasonable demands on this teacher's time um but but this and but this guy, this student was just totally and just wasn't getting the memo.
2: Yeah, if Storm was here, he would tell us about the Zen masters who just like just hit their students right. with a stick. Yeah, Yeah, and then you hit them enough
0: times in the right way at the exact right split second, and eventually, like right. they get it in a way maybe they didn't right. before. But that, but to like someone on the outside, that looks like just hitting someone with a stick, and more importantly, to to people like us who don't necessarily have the insight and the wisdom to really be able to discern that from like just a psychopath who's hitting people with a stick like a psychopath could just be hitting people with a stick and because he's sadistic and in particular if they have the right title they have the right lineage they have the right you know credentials so to speak then like you can get in a really dangerous situation which is essentially what happened with Sogyo Rinpoche which was that um, you know he had these credentials he had the title he had all this stuff Um, And people took him seriously and they really shouldn't have. And um, I heard in the aftermath of that, I mean, it was it was actually right around that time. It was maybe right before. And then, you know, it kind of all blew up. But, um, uh, you know, I I heard another teacher uh, say, you know, like, you think we don't know? like who the real teachers are and who the fake teachers are, like who actually knows their stuff and knows how to do the rituals and actually has insight yeah. and who doesn't, yeah. we know that, but we, we're not going to talk yeah. about that with you. <laughs> you know, like we're not, we're not telling you that, <laughs> yeah. Plebs. Yeah. but like, yeah. but, uh, we know, we know. <laughs> so, so, um, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so Chogyam Chungpa was the was like the and i I would say again the mirror image of that because he did a lot i mean he was he, his whole thing was he was essentially like apostle to the hippies and he he understood that there was you know the hippies were terrible, but they were kind of they were onto to some they they had if nothing else they were genuinely motivated right i mean some of the genuinely in the sense of like they really did want to learn. Maybe it was narcissistic. Maybe there were all kinds of problems. And I met some sort kind of former hippies who were indeed tamed by Chukyam Trungpa himself and some by his students in that tradition. But, you know, he would drink with them. He would smoke pot with them. He would do LSD with them. Uh, he would sleep with them. He would, um, He you know, he did all, he was, he he did the whole hippie thing. Um, and uh, kind of most infamously, his hand-picked disciple, I, if I recall correctly, like, got some people like hiv positive and it was all i mean there was all kinds of scandal and he he basically drank himself to death himself he himself you know died of I, either if it, was, it wasn't directly from cirrhosis it was from complications from from alcohol abuse um at the same time he was an incredible teacher who left many i highly highly recommend anyone who's listening or anyone who's interested in this stuff his his book cutting through which is really a compilation of his oral teachings uh cutting through spiritual materialism is an just an all-time classic and and whether you're buddhist or not buddhist or zen or whatever like cutting through spiritual materialism is something that everyone should read anyone who's interested in any of this kind of you know christians whoever pay gang gang you know and everyone should read this book and uh and think about it and and he so he left us you know his teachings and he left us a tradition Papa! that you know, <laughs> has some issues but is is definitely very benefit has been a huge net positive and, and and he really was the tip of the spear in bringing the dharma into the united states and in and, and some ways the west generally so you know but but how do you differentiate between that and someone who's basically just being abusive and you know it it at a certain level it's
2: uh, i don't know
1: You know, I'm glad you mentioned that with the I mean I knew about the drinking and the HIV infections and all that other stuff. That but wasn't I him didn't to do that. Was his,
0: that was his student. Yeah, that was yeah. his like handpicked successor, but not him not he himself.
1: But when you put it in the context of of him trying to bring this message to those hippies, then actually that makes a lot of sense. And it, and my estimation of him has gone up considerably <laughs> as a result of that. Well I'm
0: happy to hear that. I think I, I know teachers that knew him personally. I knew I know westerners that knew him personally. I I have never people that I, like I've never heard anyone that I respect say anything other than he was a great teacher, a, a real bodhisattva and it's you know, it's unfortunate how people who are bent on character assassination can can will do that, but you you know, you then people are going to be like that. What can you do?
1: Makes sense. It's and I guess it does go back to just like how dominate how dominated American Buddhism tends to be by the boomers to still to this day unfortunately
0: <laughs> one eighty yeah <laughs> so um aura did you have i, I wanted to, you you wanted to talk a little maybe about um these ajans that you mentioned
2: yeah sure yeah yeah that's great um so the term Ajahn in Thailand just means teacher. So if you become a well-respected teacher, you get the name Ajahn. And I'm going to talk about Ajahn Mun, Ajahn Lee, and a couple of other Ajan uh, Ajahn Lee, uh, for our listeners, that's the one I wanted to talk about uh, in our Twitter DM group before we started talking <laughs> Today, But uh, as I told um, Kagyu and Dharmakirti and Storm King, uh, I realized that I couldn't talk about Ajahn Lee without talking about Ajahn Mun. So in the 19th century, so that's the 1800s, Buddhism in Thailand was essentially just a bunch of superstitions. There was very few people that actually knew Pali or... Uh, were following the teachings of the Buddha from from, from that perspective. Uh, Ajahn Mun was born uh, in, oh boy, I'm going to get it wrong, but around 1870 or so. And uh, when he was in his early 20s, he ordained as a monk. And uh, at that time, there were two kinds of Buddhism in Thailand. There was um, what you might call conventional Buddhism, which in Thailand at the time meant superstitious Buddhism. It was about amulets. It was about prayers. It was about, uh, again, not that prayers are bad or anything, but it was, it was about spells, magic spells, and and this, and that kind of thing. And, uh, and there was reform Buddhism and reform Buddhism was the, um, if you've ever seen the, the, the King and I, that musical, that's uh, the King featured in that musical is uh, King Rama, the (laughs) fourth. And before King Rama the Fourth, I'm sorry, DK, your your child know, is. am sorry. <laughs> very yeah, very charming. Also... <laughs> let
0: me uh, let me mute. It's not gonna. It's gonna. Unfortunately, probably no. show, okay. up on just, show just, audio. But just yeah. mute,
2: mute your mic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one no, time. no, it's cool. Uh, so King Rama the Fourth, who's featured <laughs> in uh, the the King and I, the musical, uh, the movie that many people might know. Uh, He was actually a Buddhist monk for 27 years, and he was very unhappy with the way that Buddhism was going um, in Thailand at the time. Again, this is in the 19th century. And he started a movement to go back to um, learning about what the Buddha actually taught, not caring about special magic amulets and this and that local demon and god or whatever. But like, how do we actually reach enlightenment? and what did the buddha teach and that's what uh his his name before he became king rama the 4th was uh prince mongkut uh and so prince mongkut uh started uh several monasteries uh in thailand and ajahn mun went to these monasteries uh because he was also like king rama very uh unhappy with uh yeah, he just didn't find a, a spiritual path, you know, making amulets for local house ladies and stuff like it was a nice thing to do. But like, how do you reach enlightenment that way? So Ajahn Mun uh, studied under the king from King and I, King Rama the IV. Uh, and after that, he set off into his own, into the forest. And he noted that the Buddha and other major figures like Bodhidharma... Uh, found enlightenment in solitude. And Ajahn Mun went into the uh, rainforests of Thailand, Thailand, which at that time were much more uh, prevalent. And he basically dedicated his whole life to meditation. And he was very strict on the Vinaya. Uh, which for our listeners is the code of conduct for monks, essentially set down by the Buddhists uh, about 500 years after the Buddha passed on into nirvana. And he took Thai Buddhism from superstition back into the path of enlightenment. And the guy I want to talk about is Ajahn Lee. And Ajahn Lee was forge his own path into the the student of I, who sort of forced, and Ajahn Lee is the guy who learned from him. Uh, and so Ajahn Lee lived in the middle of the 20th century, so I, I don't know when he was born, but say he was teaching from the 50s until like the 80s or so in the last century. and He is famous for his levity. He was, everybody who ever met him was just like started laughing just from being around this guy. Like the light in his eyes. Uh, One of his students was called Ajahn Mahabua. And Ajahn Mahabua said that the biggest thing that he learned from Ajahn Lee was not... A meditation technique or some sort of arcane knowledge about uh the pali canon or something it was the biggest thing he learned from ajan lee is that there is a brightness to life brightness to life and that is what Ajahn lee gave to the rest of thailand and to the rest of the world and the student the uh, uh, the student of Ajahn Lee's that I follow now, he wasn't a direct student, but he was a student of the people that Ajahn Lee taught. Is uh, Thanissaro Uh and he was taught by Ajahn Suat, Ajahn Mahabua. These guys who learned from Ajahn Lee. Um, so, I guess what I'm saying is that Buddhism was sort of dead in in terms of seeking after enlightenment until Ajahn Mun. And Ajahn Mun made this heroic journey out into the forest to rediscover what the Buddha was actually talking about. Not amulets, but enlightenment. And Ajahn Lee, his student, was the guy who, yeah, uh, was able to teach that to the next generation. And now we have that available to us. And to me, that lineage is super important, super interesting, and uh, yeah. and. So when we wanted to talk about uh, teachers and stuff, that that's what I wanted to talk about.
0: Well, thank you for sharing. Sorry, there was a bit of dead space. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I didn't know. I didn't realize that the that king had been. I knew. I knew that the Thai forest tradition was of r- relatively recent vintage in a certain. Depending on how you look at it. Um. Because of course, you know, but I didn't realize it, that it was that, um, it was, it was connected to the Royal power structure, which, which, uh, I like, <laughs> but, but uh,
2: yeah, it's, it's less than 150 years old.
0: Yeah. That I knew, I knew it was, I mean, I, I, um, I know, I know that, and and it was, do you know if it was connected to the, the situation in Burma, which I know was, I mean, I, cause uh, it was a similar, it must've been, it must've been, um. Because in, for those of you who don't know the, uh, I guess Myanmar now, but the the, the theosophists who were, like, it's a whole other kind of thing, but but basically the, the, these 19th century spiritualists who um, were kind of crazy. Um, it was primarily uh, Madame Helena Blavatsky uh, and Colonel Henry Steele Olcott, who had fought in the American Civil War. And Olcott went, I think, first to Sri Lanka and then to Burma. I forget, but he traveled in the region and, and terrified a region. He he was like, "Do you do you know about this, or? Are you familiar with any of this history?" It's this, it's a super cool like thing. Um, no, I'm not. He I'm not. No. he basically because Theosophy the the whole Theosophy thing was like religion is a science and science just hasn't caught like quote unquote science just hasn't caught up. This was like the spiritualist thing general. These are the people who were the spiritualists were these. I'm familiar
2: with theosophy, but the link to Thailand. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, exactly. So, so, so the whole, their whole thing was like the, the, the spiritualists were like doing the x-rays to find ghosts and stuff. This is a lot where like our kind of steampunk things come from. And and this whole aesthetic uh, is, is from that. And the theosophists were one expression of that. And one of the founders of the Theosophy um, was the like he basically went to Sri Lanka and he's like oh I think it was Sri Lanka first and then Burma or the other way around but it was it was Theravada countries and he's like you people are just doing all these magic spells and and um writing these you know glyphs and tattoos and stuff and there's nothing wrong with that he was like like, that's that's scientific but it's not the real buddhism real buddhism is i'm about to tell you and it was like it was he wrote this really bizarre um i think he called it the bible of buddha this buddhist handbook or i forget what exactly it was some book of compilation of like his own insane rantings that like became standard and it's i think in some areas still is kind of standard part of the Buddhist education in, in some of these areas. But, um, he was like, he sort of responsible for kickstarting, uh, the, um, like this research Not responsible, but he was, he was, he was, he got it in people's heads in the region in in South and Southeast Asia that, that like Buddhism had kind of gone off the rails in some way or to some extent and needed to be brought back in line with the original tradition, which, was not what he was actually selling, but then when the own and when the indigenous people in those regions came to understand what um, they were, w- the wealth they had in their hands that they maybe weren't utilizing to the full extent um, that they could, then then they kind of got rid of the Theosophy stuff, but but went back to these you know the mindfulness stuff in the early, the Polycanon and and so yeah, it was, like the Theosophists were were deeply <laughs> yeah intertwined that's history. That's,
2: yeah, that's very interesting. But I, I would just say that Ajahn Mun just went into the forest. Sure. He did not have contact with uh, theosophists or anything. Like, <laughs> he was trying to... What he did was he was a master of Pali and he read the Pali canon and what he found was that the Buddha likewise uh, went off alone by himself uh, and then came back to teach. And Ajahn Mun did not say that he was the buddha or anything like he he didn't have any pretensions to that level or anything but it says if i want to imitate the buddha then this is what i should do and it ended up founding this tradition which again is only a 100 years old or whatever so how can we call it a tradition but it is a very deep and very beautiful expression of the dharma and
0: yeah no, I, I don't I don't doubt that at all. It was just the um it's not to say I I, I know he he went in I was trying to looking this up now. He they the um Blavatsky and Olcott went to India in eighteen seventy nine. They set up the um their headquarters there in Bombay, which you can still visit. The building is still there. I've I've been there. And um I believe uh it was that building. And yeah, the Adyar Library Research Center. Yeah. Anyway, um and and it was just like they uh, and it was Colombo that that's right they went first in 1880. So yeah, I mean, it's just I think it was all and and it was the Buddhist catechism was was this thing that he wrote and it's just kind of nuts, <laughs> but uh, I mean it's not completely wrong. But it, it's all just sort of like this you know theosophist take on stuff. Um,
1: so he's the guy responsible for this notion that Theravada Buddhism is just like this kind of. Uh, it's a scientific materialism with a little bit of a spiritual varnish kind of take that you Respond- get from some. Western.
0: I would say that that was overdetermined by, like the cultural and historical conditions on the ground. But yeah, he was instrumental for sure in in that process. Can
2: I say something about Theravada Buddhism? Please. The yes. concept the concept of Theravada Buddhism is only necessary because of Mahayana. Sure. It doesn't really. It Theravada doesn't really exist. Um it's just Buddhism. Um and the Mahayanists and I, I I'm not saying this like because I don't like Mahayanists. I do, I love them. In some senses, I consider myself one in a weird kind of way. Um but the Mahayana considered themselves a new school of Buddhism. And for our listeners, uh, I know you guys already know this, Dharmakirti and Kagyu. Uh, but there's a uh, a word they use which is Hinayana, which means uh, the lesser vehicle, which is Mahayana means. Uh, the yeah, greater we're vehicle. not
1: supposed to use that uh, generally. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And, uh, you know, we all know that that. Uh, well, I mean, it's fine. Whatever. That's a Mahayana term that's fine. But the whole concept of Theravada is really just a reframing of the Mahayana idea of Hinayana. It's like a a positive way of framing the way the Mahayanas have framed the Theravada. But there is no, I mean, all right. I admit that there was a monk in Sri Lanka, uh, about, a th- uh, 1500 years ago who laid out what's are the rules for what's now considered the Theravada. But to the extent that we consider somebody like Ajahn Mun and the Thai forest tradition, Thai forest tradition, uh, Dharmavada, it's it's almost just like you're just calling that because you know it's not Mahayana. Do you know what I mean? You know yeah, that it's yeah, yeah. not. Uh, yeah. Also, yeah. I was looking into so, your, your absol- I mean
0: Sorry, you're you're uh, just to interject briefly. You're you're absolutely right. The Thai forest tradition predates Olcott's involvement, which is kind of in- it's very interesting to me because these people are all kind of hitting on the same thing at the same time, but
2: more or less independently. <sighs> You know um, what, regardless of the schools, regardless of the yeah. history of of everything, I I personally am on this call and am doing this podcast with you guys because I think that the Buddha actually achieved nirvana, and I think that he taught for 50 years about how to actually do what right. he did, yeah. right? Sure, yeah. Same. And agreed. that agreed. Yeah. That's what's important. Like, that's really all I care about. And uh, so there's various traditions that have... have given us ways to think about that and um like i said on an earlier podcast um we're not ancient indians living 2500 years ago so it is helpful to have more modern uh, interpreters of it it is helpful to have somebody explain it to us in, in terms that we can understand but there's nothing to understand other than what the buddha understood he he knew it and he taught it that's That's being a Buddhist, right? All the other stuff is just kind of fun and games, as far as I'm concerned.
1: And and let me clarify, though. I mean, you're right. And, of course, the Theravada is a complete tradition, and it's something that absolutely is legitimate 100%. There's no question about that. Um, It's just that there's a tendency among some Westerners to misinterpret, like, this very straightforward path and turn it into, well, one form of California Buddhism. So you might have, as, like... Just like there's California Zen, there's this idea, oh, it's just uh, it's just like, you know, it's totally free of any kind of spirituality. It's it's just like right. rational. Right. Yeah. Brain hacking is like a term I sometimes yeah, – Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yes. totally. That's the Jack uh, of Twitter. What's mm-hmm. that guy's name?
1: Yeah, Jack. Yeah. That's what he was basically arguing. He went to Burma and stayed in yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. monastery and says, yeah, it's brain hacking. I'm like, oh, God.
2: <laughs> That's super annoying. Yeah. Yes. Brain hacking. <laughs> Basically. <laughs> oh,
0: that's but a...
2: that's a, the reason it's annoying is because it's so close to the truth, right? <laughs> yes. It's like you, it's you're so close to the truth. Well, that that's funny. Yeah. So... <laughs> it is actually what, and that we, we're not going to talk about karma today, apparently, but that is what was so revolutionary about what the Buddha understood is that you can actually break. The habits of your own mind through hacking it but yeah ah, mind. well the, the key the, the word
0: to, is typically and it's i mean it's a pretty good pretty direct i should say translation from tibetan is mind training is like really one of the foundational disciplines in tibetan buddhism and um yeah what's the difference between mind training and brain hacking you know like yeah. it, at a certain level Kagyu, i think you're uh yeah. So, you, I so mean, I unwittingly, the... if you, uh, I think you may have you might want to silence the thing in the background, or somebody. One of you, I think. Well, I don't think it's me.
2: Anyway, sorry. Go on. Might have been me.
1: It, it's it's it just kind of interesting. The uh, Silicon Valley has accidentally Silicon Valley Vipassana has accidentally discovered something correct.
0: <laughs> well, it's like I think we were talking about. Yeah, it man. No, Was seriously. That, the like the effective altruism the, people, no like shit. it's not they're not wrong, <laughs> you know they're not wrong. It's just they're, they're fucking nuts, and they got like they have wrong some wrong axioms. But you know, yeah, if, like if effective altruism wasn't just a like poly whatever they what do they call themselves? Po- 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 what are they, what is the poly- polyamorous circle jerk? Uh, <laughs> then, then like. <laughs> you know maybe they be they kind of are onto something but they they don't really understand
2: what it is they're talking
0: about unfortunately
2: well we didn't get to talk about karma in this episode and um i think we will have to do it yeah yeah we could do that episode, next time but that's fine
0: i mean unless yeah, karma
2: is determined else, but- every moment of your life yeah yeah no 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 no, no, I want to say what I want to say what I want to say. Oh, okay. Karma is determined every moment of your life. Every single every single split second of your life. No matter who you are, whether you're the Buddha or you're Dharmakirti or Kagyu or myself or anybody listening. You choose what ha- what is happening in your mind. And it doesn't feel like it most of the time. It feels like an automatic process. Uh, In fact, most of the time, it is an automatic process. And when you slow down and you meditate and you look at it, you see these automatic processes happening. But if you can get your mind quiet enough, you can start to see that these quote-unquote automatic processes are, in fact, chosen. You are doing them on purpose. When you get hateful, it's on purpose. When you get lustful, it's on purpose, etc., when you worry about yourself, when you think that you're not good enough, you're doing that on purpose because on some very deep level, it feels good. And that is what's called present karma. Past karma is something else. We can talk about that on the karma episode. But present karma is your current choice to feel that way. And this is the radical under- understanding of the Buddha. This is what the Buddha understood. And it's so hard to feel that in an everyday life. Um, that that's why this is like, yes, Buddhism is kind of a science in that sense. Like, Oh yeah. Science of the mind or whatever, but it is a religious practice because the implications of understanding that go right to the core of what does it even mean to be alive? What does it even mean to be a human being? So I got that off my chest and,
0: uh, <laughs> no, that's very profound. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Well, I think there was a part of me that was like, "Is it really?" But then it, it's the thing is. I mean, again, from I mean, to put on my kind of like Abhidharma hat, I don't know what else to say, my Buddhist scholastic hat. You know, when you say present karma, what is there other than the present? I mean, in a very real, very down to brass tacks ontological sense, the, the, the present moment that's always already receding is the only, literally, the only thing that can ever exist. So, in a sense not even just in a sense, in a very literal sense, what else is there?
2: Is that a direct question or is that a rhetorical question?
0: Uh, Do you want to, you can discuss if you want. I'm happy to.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. So what you experience in your, right now, right now as you're talking to me on this call, is a combination of your past karma and your present karma. Your past karma, you cannot control, right? That That's already happened. Your present karma, you can actually control. This is why I had the thread about free will, uh, I don't know, a couple of months ago or whatever. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a simple answer. There are two kinds of karma. One is past and one is present. And the past, you cannot control. And we get fucked up as human beings trying to worry about our past karma. You can't do anything about it. It's done. Your present karma is what you should be paying attention to. What you, the way you view your current experience changes everything.
1: Well, it's interesting that you're mentioning that you cannot control past karma, but you can control present karma. Yet present karma, by definition, is a product of that same past karma.
2: So, no, 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 dude, no. No, it's not? No, it's not. That's the point. That's the whole point is that there is a moment when you look inside in meditation and seek your present intention. That's what present karma means. It means what you're doing right now.
1: Ah, Okay, so not the situation that you're brought into but how you react to that. that yes. That, okay, that makes perfect sense then.
2: Yes, yes.
0: I think we should discuss this more on the karma episode um, because it's a very, obviously a very (laughs) big topic and uh, we'll have to do that um, another time. Did you have any, any uh, um, other thoughts on teachers or
2: something else you wanted to hit?
1: I didn't. Uh, Ara, do you?
2: Nah, man, I'll just repeat, you know, it's too bad Storm wasn't here, but uh, we'll, we'll hit him up. We'll, we'll hit him up.
0: up. Uh, I I wanted to say maybe one one and closing thought, and that that's you know that's enough. Is um. It sucks that you don't have a teacher. I I, I wouldn't. I won't like. I don't want to. It's not. I don't say that in like a. Judgmental way or whatever, but it it. it I I think. I, I you know past a certain point. Which is you know, like, it's just, it's just helpful. Like you can do it without that. I think I I might've mentioned elsewhere. I don't really remember, but there are, you know, um, there is a path that it doesn't involve an external teacher, but it takes a lot longer and it's a lot more difficult. And it's just so helpful to have that kind of relationship it's just so helpful. And, and it's, it's not to say that it's easy to acquire, especially in this day and age. Um, particularly when you're talking about people that cause you know, we, we don't, I don't really know that there are any Western quote unquote teachers that I would really take seriously. Um, I, I don't, I haven't seen the Western born I know some people really like payment children and, and she's, I haven't met her. She's okay. She seems all right. But, um, for the most part, I, I just, I, I, I haven't really, certainly not in my direct experience, I haven't met a Westerner who I would think of as, as like, you know, soup to nuts, like got it down. Um, Which is not to say there won't be. I think we're, again, we're in this, like we're in the beginning phases of a process that takes centuries. Um, But, okay, so then the fact that there aren't Western teachers like that means that you're talking primarily or exclusively about, Asia, you know, Asian teachers, which means probably they're going to be living in Asia and probably you're not. And then well, how does that work? Um, it's really difficult. It's just very difficult. But, you know, if you can make that kind of a connection or make some kind of, and I don't just mean this to you, I just mean anyone who's listening in just in general, um, there's really no substitute in, in in my experience. And it's also, I think what the tradition says is you really like, you know, it, it yeah maybe that's enough it's just very helpful and i hope you you know and, and for me personally because this is something i struggled with for a long time not that i didn't have t- teachers that i trusted or had some kind of relationship with but it, it you know it took years to really find myself on firm footing um and, you know and and with a with a particular person and um honestly prayer helps in that regard too like you know Asking, you know, sort of sending the intention, like, please, I would really appreciate having a relationship like this.
2: Yeah, man, right on. Sounds
1: right. good. Okay. Completely agreed.
0: Is that? I must be super late. We're uh, in your northern latitude, so I don't want to um, keep people longer. Um, was was that it? Were there any other closing thoughts, or is that maybe a good place to end it?
1: I think that's good for me
0: yeah that's good okay thank you all so much for listening thanks everyone um and uh and thank you aura for um staying up and and doing this it's um, (laughs) uh no for real for real um and uh and thanks kagu and uh we miss you storm we'll hope to see you next week till then goodbye bye
1: bye everyone